we didn't build Airbnb as a way to travel. We actually built Airbnb as a way to host people. Hmm. And I think that is a very, very critical insight, which is that the origins are around hosting and community and connecting with people. And travel just happens to be an amazing pretext for all that. It's holiday season, which means you're probably traveling to visit family and friends in the next few weeks. And if you're not staying on your sister's super uncomfortable couch or at a nearby hotel, you're probably staying in an Airbnb. Ever since Brian Chesky co-founded Airbnb in 2008, the home sharing company has revolutionized travel, transformed the tourism industry, and even reshaped local real estate markets. But 15 years later, Airbnb is no longer a scrappy startup for couch surfers. Now, it's one of the biggest and most influential travel companies on the planet, which means it's facing increased scrutiny for its effect on local economies. And as Airbnb becomes ubiquitous in top tourist destinations, cities from Florence to Barcelona have imposed new regulations on rentals. And even New York, the top tourist destination in the U.S., recently effectively banned short-term rentals altogether. I spoke with Chesky about how his background in art and design helped him build Airbnb, how his company is responding to new challenges to its business model, and why sometimes being a CEO of a $75 billion company can be surprisingly lonely. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. So if you look at the number of Thanksgiving users Airbnb had in 2009 to now, I mean, that must be an incredible shift. What have been the most noticeable trends and behavioral shifts you've seen in how people use Airbnb? Well, I mean, if you start with 2009, we literally had like thousands of people using Airbnb. Mm -hmm. So back then, we'd be lucky if we had hundreds of people a night. Now we have this holiday season greater than the population of Los Angeles, more than 4 million people. And those people are going to come from nearly every country in the world. And so the first thing is just the fact that 14 years ago, this was kind of just this crazy idea that I think there was a reasonable amount of skepticism this would ever be something that's mainstream. And now it's you know, significantly larger than any hotel chain in the world by the number of people it accommodates. So that's been pretty crazy. Hmm. I think the other thing that we're seeing, maybe especially in a post-pandemic world, is that I think people have more flexibility who do a job basically via a laptop, right? So there's a lot of workers whose job can be done by a computer or laptop. For years, people had to go to an office. And now, a lot more people have flexibility. And it's not that everyone's going to live remote. But what's happening is people are taking extended holidays. Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving weekend, that Monday or Tuesday, even if they're working, they're going away for that entire week. So if a three-day weekend becomes a five-day weekend, a mm -hmm. five-day weekend becomes like a seven or nine-day trip. And maybe they're working part of the time. We're also seeing more and more people travel by groups. Hmm. I think during the pandemic, a lot of people were, you know, essentially sheltering in place, staying with their friends, staying with their family. And when they did travel, they would travel in groups, partly because they didn't want to be alone. It's very economic to share housing. You know, a lot of things were shut off during the pandemic. So the way to entertain yourself was to spend time with other people. But I think that became a permanent change to Airbnb. 
In other words, now we are seeing larger and larger groups stay in larger mm. and larger homes. So those are the two big trends we're seeing. So I want to go back in time for a second <laughs> and kind of get your origin story and sort of how you got to this place. So you grew up in upstate New York. What was your home like growing up? Was your family a big traveling family? So we were not a giant traveling family. Most of my trips growing up were day trips. So like we lived in a in New York and we would go to like Stockbridge, Massachusetts. There was a North Rockwell Museum that I used to love going to because I was an artist growing up. We'd go to the Catskills or Adirondacks or like George. Just like mostly places where you didn't have to stay overnight. Hotels were very expensive. Once a year though, so my mom's a social worker. Mm-hmm. And once a year, there was like this annual social work conference. And it was in a different city in the United States every year. And she would get free flight and hotel. So my dad, my sister, and I would join her business trip, turn it into a half-family vacation. And we would go to a different city every year. And it was the only time a year I'd usually be on an airplane. So the first trip, I was seven years old, and we went to St. Louis. It was the first time I was on an airplane. And I remember getting to St. Louis thinking, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I just started Mm -hmm. to realize suddenly the world was so much larger than the town that I grew up in. We went to Dallas one year and then Seattle, and we went to Chicago. And it honestly had a pretty profound impact on me. Hmm. I mean, I think there's something about travel that educates you, that opens your eyes. It's hard to have a vivid imagination when you have had limited life experiences. And for me, it was one of the greatest educations I've ever had. I can't tell you I remember every day of the classroom of school, but I can tell you I remember almost every single day of every one of these vacations. These trips are imprinted in my mind. So I'm really curious about your artistic origins. It sort of reminds me a little bit of how Steve Jobs always said that his interest in calligraphy helped make Apple into what it was. So can you tell me about what kind of art you were into as a kid and how you think it informed what you built at Airbnb? Yeah, I mean, I have memories of being four or five years old studying Norman Rockwell because we would go to that museum, and he was one of the great illustrators of the 20th century. It was reminiscent of the great master painters. I loved a lot of the Renaissance artists like Nero da Vinci. So I was a drawer. I used graphite pencil and charcoal and painting. And I was kind of a realist artist when I was like 14, 15. Then Mm -hmm. I moved into surrealism. And I ended up going to Rhode Island School of Design, a well-known art school in Providence, Rhode Island. And the moment I got on campus, I thought to myself, oh my God, I was born like a hundred years too late for what I want to do because I love doing like very realistic representations through drawing and painting and photography, even then, especially more so now, and now even more so maybe AI was already replacing a lot of the utility in society for that. So I thought to myself, I want to do something that reaches millions of people. Fine art didn't seem to reach the kind of people I grew up with in my mm-hmm. hometown. And so I remember you have to pick a major freshman year. And there's a department for this field called industrial design. And they mm-hmm. said industrial design is the design of everything from a spaceship to a toothbrush and everything in between. And I think the thing that's amazing about that education is it teaches you empathy. It teaches mm-hmm. you to put yourself in the shoes of the person you're designing for. And you're not just designing objects, you're designing user journeys. It teaches you how to reduce something to its essence. It teaches you marketing and strategy because if you design something that doesn't sell, that's kind of not a good product. Mm-hmm. And I also think maybe the last thing I'll say, RISD taught me about how to design at a systems level. 
And I think that means that I think the skill set of a designer translates to being a tech founder or a CEO. Hmm. Why? If you look at like the Fortune 500, how many of those CEOs actually have any kind of creative background whatsoever? I'm aware of one of them. And there might be others, but like if you told me there were 10, I'd be shocked. And probably there's only a few, right? Because you think by now we would have known them and we'd get dinner together and talk yeah. and commiserate and stuff. No, there's hardly any. Hmm. Um, it's very rare for designers or creative people to be in positions of power. They're usually, you know, working for people. And so why is this? I think numbers have become the language of business. And I think that creative people don't fit into that system super neatly. But you might ask, why is this important? Like, why should creative people be involved in business? Well, that's another way of saying, why should creative people have a place in this world? Because a huge amount of the change in the world happens through businesses and technology companies. I think that creative people and design-oriented people bring a number of things. I think designers and creative people have a sense of craftsmanship. They have a sense of caring about the details of something. I think they are motivated by understanding the needs of the person they're making something for and trying to put as much love and care and craft into the thing they're making so that people want it and love it themselves. I think that products that are designed have a better spirit. They have a sense of a soul. And I think that ultimately creative companies are companies that tap into a sense of imagination, that they might come up with new breakthrough ideas, that people that were only beholden to near-term measurable outcomes won't ever have. Hmm. So can you give me an example of a decision you made or a tool you built or some aspect of Airbnb that you think kind of expresses this artistic origin? Yeah, I mean, my God, where do I start? A year and a half ago, we launched Airbnb Categories, which is when you see on our homepage that we organize all the different homes by category. So you can see like A-frame homes and you go to A-frame homes and every home is shaped like an A. Or you go to private islands and every home is a private island or castles. So designing that experience where you can swipe, there's beautiful haptics, we've got this cool iconography. See, I think a lot of people think design is how something looks. But also design means an entire integration. We actually built a system to scan photos and tag every single property to make sure the properties are accurately organized. Then we worked with hosts to professionally photograph their homes, to improve their photography. And we made sure that if the home is an A-frame home, it's A-frame category, the photo is of the outside of the house right. in A. Right. If it's a pool category, then the photo isn't the front of the house, it's the pool. Mm -hmm. And so you start to pull on these threads. So I think the point of what I'm saying is, when design is at its best, it's not the look of something. It's an entire system, and it's like every part of the app. When we come back, Brian Chesky discusses how Airbnb first came about, the joys of hosting, and new regulations faced by the company. More in a moment. So I want to get back to the history of Airbnb and your trajectory for a second. So tell me about meeting your co-founder at RISD. How did the idea for Airbnb come about? Well, it came about a little later, but I was a sophomore on campus running one of the largest organizations on campus, which is a hockey team. And Joe, my co-founder, who I meet at RISD, 
I know him in part because he decides to create the basketball team. And I like to joke that Joe and I had the hardest marketing job on the planet, which is how do you get art students to go to a sports game? Right, right. And we ended up bonding over that and we had some shared friends. Joe was an industrial design. And I think the day of graduation, I remember Joe looking at me, said, Brian, I have this premonition that one day we're going to start a company together. And, you know, I didn't know it was a significant comment or that I would ever tell that mm-hmm. story again. And so I kind of like said, okay, but I was graduating a year before him. So right. I said, well, I'm moving to Los Angeles. I got a job as an industrial designer at a small design firm. I was working kind of like an entry mid-level job designing products for small businesses and entrepreneurs. And they'd say, hey, we have $50,000. Can you design this product, build a prototype, and even think about how to go to market? And for some people, that would make them happy. But for me, I said, this is not my life. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to design things that I make, not design things for other people. And I do that for two years. And two years later, Joe calls me and he says, Brian, I just moved to San Francisco. Come to San Francisco. Let's start a company together. So October 2007, this design conference was coming to San Francisco. All the hotels are sold out. And I just moved to San Francisco. And Joe and I have an idea. We said, well, what if we just turned our house into a bed and breakfast for the design conference? Unfortunately, I didn't have any beds, but Joe had three air beds. We pulled the air beds out of the closet and we called it airbedandbreakfast.com. It wasn't even a tool for hosting. It was a tool for Joe and I to pay our rent. We ended up hosting three people. We make enough money to pay our rent. And something more remarkable happened, which is we actually made friends. And so this was only created one weekend for us to basically find a cool, fun way to pay rent and meet some cool people and share our city with them. I think what happened though was after it happened, this other thought occurred to us. You know, we're pretty ordinary guys, Joe and I, I bet there's a lot of other ordinary people like us that would wanna make some extra money and meet some cool people. And so then it turned into a way for other people to host. And it just so happened to coincide with the financial crisis. And during the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, a lot of people weren't able to pay their housing cost. A new generation, I guess people my age, which were millennials, since I was 25, 26 when I started it, they didn't have the same feelings about hotels as the prior generation. They wanted a new, unique way to travel and save extra money. And so Airbnb just seemed to be of its era. You know, the rise of social media and social networking, the internet is now going global. People are now comfortable paying for things online, trusting one another. And I think that all these ingredients came about. I remember we said, Airbnb is going to be huge. One day, thousands of people will do this. That's what we thought. Right. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about Airbnb, but also other companies like Uber, is that these companies also ushered in this big shift of how we think about property and how we think about strangers. You know, because for years it was like, don't go into a stranger's car, don't go into a stranger's home. And now, Suddenly, everybody's constantly going into strangers' cars and strangers' homes. Why do you think people got more comfortable with this? I think it's because they were already getting comfortable connecting online. Hmm. If you think about what happened, the internet was one of the first times that you could communicate with another person. And you might remember the 90s, it was sketchy if you met someone on the internet. Right. But pretty soon, more and more, we started learning more about people. And then suddenly, you know, Friendster, MySpace, and Facebook came out. And it was very, very normal to meet people online or connect with people. In other words, a wall seemed to have come down digitally. The next thing that happened is we got comfortable paying people online. You know, whether it was PayPal or buying things online with Amazon, 
We also started getting comfortable finding housing online. Think of Craigslist. Craigslist predates Airbnb. And so I think all these ingredients were there where people started inching more and more comfortably. You see, I don't think people trust strangers. They still don't. But the whole premise of Airbnb is what if they weren't strangers? What if it's not a stranger? It's like Megan, she's an architect. She went to this college. So suddenly the moment you learn about people and there's veracity information, they're not strangers. So we created this system of trust that kind of took the strange out of stranger. We thought, well, what if we could give every person a reputation? If we could make them a real person rather than an anonymous figure on the internet. And that was the basic premise. So we were the first app that I'm aware of that allowed you to very directly pay another person. And we had a two-way review system. And that two-way review system, we had a 60, 70% review rate. They were all transactional reviews. And the reviews were like Yelp reviews. They were like paragraphs. So I think we combined a lot of features originally that had never really been combined. And so I think the reputation system, it doesn't mean things don't go wrong, but means that people are much more educated about what they're getting themselves into. So you launched Airbnb in 2008 in the middle of the recession. Um, And you once said that you think the company only worked because it was launched in the recession. Why do you think that is? We don't have the counterfactual. We don't know what would have happened if Airbnb was launched and there was no recession. But what I do know about the recession is this. When times are bad economically, people are willing and open to newer ideas, especially ideas that seem like a little bit wacky social experiments if they allow you to make money or save money. Hmm. But I think the biggest obstacle for Airbnb was it ran counter to social norms. And I think for that behavior to start changing, there needed to be a benefit It's not enough to invent a system of trust. There has to be a reason for people to do something new they'd never done before. And people saving money, people making money, and people having great experiences. But money was Mm -hmm. the hook. And so I think a lot of people were losing their homes. A lot of people were facing foreclosure, not knowing how they'd be able to pay their rent. And I think a lot of people turned to Airbnb. I think a lot of travelers, you know, didn't have as much income. A lot of young people, they didn't have as much financial security. So they gravitated to Airbnb, even though it was more uncertain of an experience in a hotel because it would save them money. Yeah. So, you know, it started in the recession. I'm really interested in sort of the way that the recession and the housing crisis of that moment kind of helped create the conditions for Airbnb to thrive. But 15 years later, We've got another housing crisis going on, and there are a lot of critics of Airbnb who argue and have some persuasive data that, you know, Airbnb has in some ways contributed to that housing crisis because it has allowed people to hold on to homes and to monetize homes that they might have otherwise sold and allowed someone to buy property and and build a nest egg and things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I've learned a number of lessons building a pretty big internet business. The first lesson I've learned is you cannot create something, put in the hands of 100 million people or more, and then have zero unintended consequences. How could you predict how hundreds of millions of people would use something that you created? My intention with Airbnb was to create a platform to make housing more affordable to live in for people who live there. I mean, literally, just to go back to the founding story, Joe and I couldn't pay rent. It was expensive to live in San Francisco. We realized the city would be cheaper to live in if we could supplement our income by sharing our space. Mm -hmm. So I think affordable housing is the roots of Airbnb. Now, over time, 
A lot of people turned to Airbnb to rent the home they were living in. Many people turned to Airbnb to rent the space they lived in when they weren't there. So as this happened, and this was over a decade ago, a bunch of cities we were in discussions with, and they brought these concerns to us. And we were trying to think through like, well, how do we actually solve this problem? Because we want to make housing more affordable. We want to make travel more affordable for people to visit. So over a decade ago, we started working with cities. And over the last decade, we have regulations now in the books in 80% of our top 200 markets. And the way many cities have chosen to solve this is they create some version of a registration system. They say you have to rent your primary dwelling or you can rent a pied terre or you can rent X number of nights a year. I mean, France has a, mm-hmm. literally a national housing law where they give general guidelines at the country level. And we comply with those local laws and regulations. And we just advocate for them to not be overly onerous that they have unintended consequences. But I just want to say, I think that you know the data I've seen Airbnbs very rarely take up more than 1% or 2% of the housing in a city. So let's take the city of New York. New York just restricted short-term rentals. Right. So earlier this year, New York City began enforcing new regulations on short-term rentals in this city that include the stipulation that short-term rental hosts must register with the city, as you mentioned, and that companies need to ensure that hosts' applications have been approved in order for them to begin collecting fees. You know, people are saying with some persuasive evidence that Airbnbs have been eating into how many apartments are available in New York City, which drives up the price of rent for people who want to live there full time and not for two weeks. What do you say to that? I don't know if the data is conclusive. Again, I think that Airbnbs were taking up very, very low single-digit percentages. I don't even know what percent of the homes. There were tens of thousands of Airbnbs in New York. A number of them were primary residences. We don't know how many, but a lot of them were primary residences. But I think the counterintuitive thing is when people see empty homes in Airbnb, they assume those homes could have gone to a resident and no one lives there. Right. And that's not always the case. A lot of people were depending on Airbnb to pay the rent or mortgage. So you might see a dynamic where some other people just move out of the housing. And we see some cities where when this department turns over, the landlord makes modifications, improvements, and then realizes they can charge more rent. If a city has affordable housing crisis, I think the best thing for that city, based on my experience, is allow Airbnb, but really make sure you prioritize people renting their primary dwelling. It's their primary residence they live in. Allow them to supplement their income. And then if it's a second home or dedicated rental, that requires a different level of registration. And you can literally calculate how many homes that the city needs. You know, And I, I would also encourage cities to, I mean, this is not me, for, I'm not the first one saying this, but I think many cities, there's more people moving to the city than housing being constructed. And I think that's just like a a problem that's much larger than us, which is that there's just probably not enough housing, which is why cities get expensive. And it's also part of the reason why people turn to Airbnb in the first place. I guess my point is I'm not here to defend that Airbnb is a pure force for good. I think that what I'm saying is it's a tool. It's a technology. It can be used for good. We have to work with cities responsibly. We made this work, I think, in cities all over the world. When cities tell us it doesn't work, we try to make adjustments. I think it's unfortunate that we have not found a path in New York. We made it work in Paris. We made it work in San Diego. We made it in Seattle. And every city's different. And different cities have different things that work for them. And we'll continue to modify it. 
So, but you just described what you think would be one way for cities to regulate Airbnb in a way that preserves housing access and affordability. Yes. Why don't you do that within Airbnb? Why are you looking to cities to regulate you when this is a fix that you actually could make within your company? Every city has different rules and regulations. And so Mm -hmm. we work with cities to comply with their local rules and regulations. So if a city says like you can only rent X number of nights a year, we actually do comply with that. And we limit people from doing that. I mean, are you asking why don't we create our own self-regulation? Yeah. Cities don't want that. Hmm. Cities want to be treated personally. Many cities want this activity because it's critical economic value for the city. So basically, we're in 100,000 cities. And what I've learned over the last 10, 12 years is that cities do not want a one-size-fits-all. Cities want to have custom, bespoke, design, and integration based on the needs of their city. Some cities depend on this. They want a lot of activity. And so if you were to create a one-size-fits-all system, a lot of cities are going to want modifications and say, well, yeah, but can you modify this? Can you modify that? Can you modify that? Pretty soon you end up at the solution we're at where you are going city by city. Yeah. So you recently said that Paris is the number one city in the world for Airbnb and that you're estimating over half a million people will stay in Paris Airbnbs over the three weeks during the Olympics in summer 2024. Do you think that cities like Paris might follow the regulations that New York City made? I mean, are you getting the sense that other cities are also concerned about the way Airbnb affects housing affordability? I just want to say, like, this has been going on for 13 years. Right. Like, we've been into these discussions with cities for many of them for over a decade. This is not a new phenomenon. We've had many, many meetings of cities. We've collected $9 billion of hotel tax. So this is not a new phenomenon. New York is late, not early. This is not a sign of things to come. This is like a laggard on a a series of situations. Let's talk about Paris for a second. Half a million people are going to stay in Airbnbs. So let's say as a hypothetical, Airbnb didn't exist. Hmm. Where would those half a million people stay? Right. Yeah. They wouldn't stay in hotels because the hotels are fully occupied. They would not come to Paris. And so we're working with the city of Paris. And in France, there's a national housing law. We generally actually think national housing laws could be good because they provide guidance Hmm. for cities all over. I don't think that's a bad idea. Like right now, our business is city by city. I think it could be more country by country and we could work and they can create some base level guidance at the national level like France has done. And then cities can modify it. But ultimately, I think the designer in me wants to always believe you can design a solution. And if you don't get it right the first time, you keep iterating. Hmm. So I'm curious, you know, does this success of running this multi-billion dollar company and, you know, inventing this thing that is sort of ubiquitous, does it feel the way you thought it would feel when you were thinking about this in the beginning? Or is there an element of it that can be kind of lonely? It's kind of both, right? Like, on the one hand, part of it is always what I always dreamed of. It's amazing. I have these incredibly talented people. When you start a company, you've kind of picked everyone or at least picked the people who picked the people. And so you can design the environment. You can design the kind of people you want to be around. And I've chosen to try to surround myself with some of the most talented people and disciplines all over the world. We have a lot of shared values in common. And I feel lucky every single day I get to come to work. I just absolutely love it. But I would say this. No one ever told me how isolating it would be. Now, I did hear the cliche, it's lonely at the top, but I didn't quite know what they meant. I now Mm -hmm. do. What does it mean? Well, what it means is that 
the more successful you become, oftentimes on one hand, the more people are around you all the time. I mean, you're literally not alone. You're literally mm -hmm. physically in proximity to people. But the difference is that they're not having this shared experience that you're having. Hmm. The more success you get, the fewer the people have even had that experience. And so, so that is not something to feel bad for. It's still an amazing life, but you got to really work hard. You've got to work hard to not isolate yourself. So now, 15 years later, Airbnb is thriving. It is so popular that it's basically become its own verb. You know, people yeah, talk about- It's like about, a noun and a verb. It's, it's a noun and a verb. People talk about short-term rentals. They just say Airbnb, even if they're booking it through a different company. So what do you think of that? That like, you're like the Kleenex of travel. Yeah, there's very few things that have been invented in the last few generations that like Kleenex, Xerox- Band-Aids. Band-Aids. Yeah, right, where Vaseline, which is petroleum jelly. Maybe kind of Google has become a little bit that for search, but there aren't many things. I think this is unique when you create a category and that category is something that is imprinted in people's minds associated to you. Hmm. I think the reason that Airbnb is a noun and a verb is it was so different when it came out from everything else. Even though we didn't invent the idea of a person staying in the person's home. I mean, vacation rentals existed before Airbnb. But the way it was done and the scale of it, and especially it happening in cities and happening all over the world and people staying in homes with each other, all of this was so different and so radical that it seemed so crazy. So it just became a category. Mm -hmm. And that category became called Airbnb. Mm -hmm. And so um, I understand that you also recently just launched an updated version of the app. Yeah. How did user feedback inform this update? One of the things we've realized over the last couple of years is, hey, we've grown so large. We've been getting millions and millions of pieces of feedback on how to improve Airbnb. And we really wanted to make sure that before we launch new things, that people really love our core service. And it's yeah. hard to say they love our core service if they have a list of feedback and we haven't addressed it. So what people know of as Airbnb, booking a home, and let's try to make it as perfect as possible. And one of the best things about Airbnb is that every home is one of a kind. But for every person who chooses an Airbnb, nine or 10 people still choose a hotel. And you ask them, why do you choose a hotel? The number one reason is you say, well, I know what I'm going to get. And that is the weakness of the Airbnb model. In fact, we've heard guests describe checking into an Airbnb as sometimes a moment of truth. It's the moment of truth you find out if the home you booked is the home you got. Mm -hmm. And we don't want that to be a moment of truth. We want guests to know exactly what they get before they book. And so we're launching a few big updates based on data from guests. So hmm. we've collected over 370 million reviews. Two out of three people leave reviews after their stay. We're also taking into account every time a guest calls customer service. So now when you come to Airbnb, if you see a home that's labeled guest favorite, you can have a pretty high confidence to know what you're going to get before you book. You can read all the reviews of guests before you. So it's a really cool thing. Hmm. So, Brian, it's been so great to learn about how you've been shaping our world and, you know, redefining travel for everybody. But now I want to turn to some of the everyday things that shape you. We call this segment The Last Time. When's the okay. last time you stayed in an Airbnb? I stayed in an Airbnb in Chicago last night. I had to think for a second. Yeah. I'm like, what did I do last night? I was at Airbnb last night. Yeah. <laughs> um, when's the last time you slept on an air mattress? <sighs> um, 
probably well, I sleep on a futon right now. Just that that's not quite an air mattress. My sister has a pull-up futon I sleep on. Air mattress probably like in the last couple of years. I, I think I was crashing at a friend's place. When's the last time you hosted an Airbnb guest? Um la- last weekend. Um when's the last time you had a travel catastrophe? The good news is nothing comes to mind, so it means it hasn't been recent. Okay, good. And when's the last time you lifted weights? <laughs> um, two days ago. Probably I did a 90-pound dumbbells chest. Good. Nice. Um, okay, <laughs> Brian, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. Well, thank you so much. We here at Person of the Week are wishing all of you a safe and smooth journey for this upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. We're off next week, but we'll be back the following week with a brand new episode with writer and director Cord Jefferson. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really love to hear from you. So send your tips and thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week and happy Thanksgiving. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmith is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Trigger 23. At Time, our executive producers are Michael Erlinger and Sam Jacobs. At Trigger 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.